Book Two, Chapter Eight of Two Treatises of Civil Government. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Two Treatises of Civil Government by John Locke. Book Two, Chapter Eight, of the Beginning of Political Societies. Man being, as has been said, by nature all free, equal, and independent, no one can be put out of this estate and subjected to the political power of another without his own consent. The only way whereby any one divests himself of his natural liberty and puts on the bonds of civil society is by agreeing with other men to join and unite into a community, for their comfortable, safe, and peaceable living one amongst another, in a secure enjoyment of their properties, and the greater security against any that are not of it. This any number of men may do, because it injures not the freedom of the rest. They are left as they were in the liberty of the state of nature. When any number of men have so consented to make one community or government, they are thereby presently incorporated, and make one body politic, wherein the majority have a right to act and conclude the rest. For when any number of men have, by the consent of every individual, made a community, they have thereby made that community one body, with a power to act as one body, which is only by the will and determination of the majority. For that which acts any community, being only the consent of the individuals of it, and it being necessary to that which is one body to move one way. It is necessary the body should move that way, with the greater force carries it, which is the consent of the majority, or else it is impossible it should act or continue one body, one community, which the consent of every individual that united into it agreed that it should, and so every one is bound by that consent to be concluded by the majority. And therefore we see that in assemblies, empowered to act by positive laws, where no number is set by that positive law which empowers them, the act of the majority passes for the act of the whole, and of course determines, as having, by the law of nature and reason, the power of the whole. And thus every man, by consenting with others to make one body politic under one government, puts himself under an obligation to every one of that society to submit to the determination of the majority, and to be concluded by it, or else this original compact whereby he with others incorporates into one society, would signify nothing, and be no compact, if he be left free, and under no other ties than he was in before in the state of nature. For what appearance would there be of any compact? What new engagement, if he were no farther tied by any decrees of the society, than he himself thought fit, and did actually consent to? This would be still as great a liberty as he himself had before his compact, or any one else in the state of nature hath, who may submit himself and consent to any acts of it if he thinks fit. For if the consent of the majority shall not in reason be received as the act of the whole, and conclude every individual, nothing but the consent of every individual can make anything to be the act of the whole but such a consent is next to impossible ever to be had, if we consider the infirmities of health and avocations of business, which in a number, though much less than that of a commonwealth, will necessarily 
keep many away from the public assembly. To which, if we add the variety of opinions and contrariety of interests which unavoidably happen in all collections of men, the coming into society upon such terms would be only like Cato's coming into the theatre, only to go out again. Such a constitution as this would make the mighty leviathan of a shorter duration than the feeblest creatures, and not let it outlast the day it was born in, which cannot be supposed till we can think that rational creatures should desire and constitute societies only to be dissolved, for where the majority cannot conclude the rest, there they cannot act as one body, and consequently will be immediately dissolved again. Whosoever, therefore, out of a state of nature, unite into a community, must be understood to give up all the power, necessary to the ends for which they unite into society, to the majority of the community, unless they expressly agreed in any number greater than the majority. And this is done by barely agreeing to unite into one political society, which is all the compact that is or needs be between the individuals that enter into or make up a commonwealth. And thus that which begins and actually constitutes any political society is nothing but the consent of any number of freemen capable of a majority to unite and incorporate into such a society. And this is that, and that only, which did or could give beginning to any lawful government in the world. To this I find two objections made. First, that there are no instances to be found in story of a company of men independent and equal one amongst another that met together and in this way began and set up a government. Secondly, it is impossible of right that men should do so, because all men being born under government, they are to submit to that, and are not at liberty to begin a new one. To the first there is this to answer, that it is not at all to be wondered that history gives us but a very little account of men that live together in the state of nature. The inconveniences of that condition, and the love and want of society, no sooner brought any number of them together, but they presently united and incorporated, if they designed to continue together. And if we may not suppose men ever to have been in the state of nature, because we hear not much of them in such a state, we may as well suppose the armies of Salmanasser or Xerxes were never children, because we hear little of them, till they were men, and embodied in armies. Government is everywhere antecedent to records, and letters seldom come in amongst the people, till a long continuation of civil society has, by other more necessary arts, provided for their safety, ease, and plenty, and then they begin to look after the history of their founders, and search into their original, when they have outlived the memory of it, for it is with commonwealths as with particular persons, they are commonly ignorant of their own births and infancies, and if they know anything of their original, they are beholden for it to the accidental records that others have kept of it. And those that we have, of the beginning of any polities in the world, excepting that of the Jews, where God himself immediately interposed, and which favours not at all paternal dominion, are all either plain instances of such a beginning as I have mentioned, or at least have manifest footsteps of it. He must show a strange inclination to deny evident matter of fact, when it agrees not with his hypothesis, who will not allow that the beginning of Rome and Venice were by the uniting together of several men free and independent one of another, 
amongst whom there was no natural superiority or subjection. And if Josephus Acosta's word may be taken, he tells us that in many parts of America there was no government at all. There are great and apparent conjectures, says he, that these men, speaking of those of Peru, for a long time had neither kings nor commonwealths, but lived in troops, as they do this day in Florida, the Chariquanas, those of Brazil, and many other nations, which have no certain kings, but as occasion is offered in peace or war, they choose their captains as they please. If it be said that every man there was born subject to his father, or the head of his family, that the subjection due from a child to a father took not away his freedom of uniting into what political society he thought fit, has been already proved. But be that as it will, these men, it is evident, were actually free, and whatever superiority some politicians now would place in any of them, they themselves claimed it not, but by consent were all equal, till by the same consent they set rulers over themselves, so that their politic societies all began from a voluntary union, and the mutual agreement of men freely acting in the choice of their governors and forms of government. And I hope those who went away from Sparta with Palantus, mentioned by Justin, will be allowed to have been freemen independent one of another, and to have set up a government over themselves by their own consent. Thus I have given several examples out of history of people free and in the state of nature, that being met together, incorporated, and began a commonwealth. And if the want of such instances be an argument to prove that government were not nor could not be so begun, I suppose the contenders for paternal empire were better let it alone than urge it against natural liberty. For if they can give so many instances out of history of governance begun upon paternal right, I think, though at best an argument from what has been to what should of right be, has no great force, one might, without any great danger, yield them the cause. But if I might advise them in the case, they would do well not to search too much into the original of governments, as they have begun de facto, lest they should find, at the foundation of most of them, something very little favourable to the design they promote, and such a power as they contend for. But, to conclude, reason being plain on our side, that men are naturally free, and the examples of history showing that the governments of the world that were begun in peace had their beginning laid on that foundation, and were made by the consent of the people, there can be little room for doubt, either whether right is, or what has been the opinion or practice of mankind, about the first erecting of governments. I will not deny that if we look back as far as history will direct us, towards the original of commonwealths, we shall generally find them under the government and administration of one man. And I am also apt to believe that where a family was numerous enough to subsist by itself, and continued entire together, without mixing with others, as it often happens where there is much land and few people, the government commonly began in the father. For the father having, by the law of nature, the same power with every man else to punish, as he thought fit, any offences against that law, might thereby punish his transgressing children, even when they were men, and out of their pupilage. And they were very likely to submit to his punishment." and all join with him against the offender, in their turns, giving him thereby power to execute his sentence against any transgression, and so in effect 
make him the lawmaker, and governor over all that remained in conjunction with his family. He was fittest to be trusted. Paternal affection secured their property and interest under his care, and the custom of obeying him in their childhood made it easier to submit to him rather than to any other. If, therefore, they must have one to rule them, as government is hardly to be avoided amongst men that live together, who so likely to be the man as he that was their common father, unless negligence, cruelty, or any other defect of mind or body made him unfit for it? But when either the father died and left his next heir, for want of age, wisdom, courage, or any other qualities less fit for rule, or where several families met and consented to continue together, there it is not to be doubted, but they used their natural freedom to set up him whom they judged the ablest and most likely to rule well over them. Conformable hereunto, we find the people of America, who, living out of reach of the conquering swords and spreading domination of the two great empires of Peru and Mexico, enjoyed their own natural freedom, though, ceteris paribus, they commonly prefer the heir of their deceased king. Yet if they find him any way weak or incapable, they pass him by, and set up the stoutest and bravest man for their ruler. Thus, through looking back as far as records give us any account of peopling the world and the history of nations, we commonly find the government to be in one hand, yet it destroys not that which I affirm, that is, that the beginning of politic society depends upon the consent of the individuals to join into and make one society, who, when they are thus incorporated, might set up what form of government they thought fit. But this having given occasion to men to mistake, and think that by nature government was monarchical, and belonged to the father, it may not be amiss here to consider why people in the beginning generally pitched upon this form, which, though perhaps the father's preeminency might, in the first institution of some commonwealths, give a rise to, and place in the beginning, the power in one hand. Yet it is plain that the reason that continued the form of government in a single person was not any regard or respect to paternal authority, since all petty monarchies, that is, almost all monarchies, near their original, have been commonly, at least upon occasion, elective. First, then, in the beginning of things, the father's government of the childhood of those sprung from him, having accustomed them to the rule of one man, and taught them that where it was exercised with care and skill, with affection and love to those under it, it was sufficient to procure and preserve to men all the political happiness they sought for in society. It was no wonder that they should pitch upon and naturally run into that form of government which from their infancy they had been all accustomed to, and which, by experience, they had found both easy and safe. To which, if we add, that monarchy being simple and most obvious to man whom neither experience had instructed in forms of government, nor the ambition or insolence of empire had taught to beware of the encroachments of prerogative, or the inconveniencies of absolute power, which monarchy in succession was apt to lay claim to, and bring upon them. It was not at all strange that they should not much trouble themselves to think of methods of restraining any exorbitances of those to whom they had given the authority over them, and of balancing the power of government by placing several parts of it in different hands. They had neither felt the oppression of tyrannical dominion, nor did the fashion of the age, nor their possessions or way of living, 
which afforded little matter for covetousness or ambition, give them any reason to apprehend or provide against it. And therefore it is no wonder they put themselves into such a frame of government, as was not only, as I said, most obvious and simple, but also best suited to their present state and condition, which stood more in need of defence against foreign invasions and injuries than of multiplicity of laws. The equality of a simple poor way of living, confining their desires within the narrow bounds of each man's small property, made few controversies, and so no need of many laws to decide them, or variety of officers to superintend the process, or look after the execution of justice, where there were but few trespassers and few offenders. Since then those who liked one another so well as to join into society cannot but be supposed to have some acquaintance and friendship together, and some trust in one another, they could not but have greater apprehensions of others than of one another, and therefore their first care and thought cannot but be supposed to be how to secure themselves against foreign force. It was natural for them to put themselves under a frame of government which might best serve to that end, and choose the wisest and bravest man to conduct them in their wars, and lead them out against their enemies, and in this chiefly be their ruler. Thus we see that the kings of the Indians in America, which is still a pattern of the first ages in Asia and Europe, whilst the inhabitants were too few for the country, and want of people and money gave men no temptation to enlarge their possessions of land, or contest for wider extent of ground, are little more than generals of their armies. And, though they command absolutely in war, yet at home and in time of peace they exercise very little dominion, and have but a very moderate sovereignty, the resolutions of peace and war being ordinarily either in the people or in a council. Though the war itself, which admits not of plurality of governors, naturally devolves the command into the king's sole authority. And thus in Israel itself, the chief business of their judges and first kings seems to have been to be captains in war and leaders of their armies, which, besides what is signified by going out and in before the people, which was to march forth to war and home again in the heads of their forces, appears plainly in the story of Jephthah. The Ammonites making war upon Israel, the Gileadites in fear sent to Jephthah, a bastard of their family whom they had cast off, and article with him, if he will assist them, against the Ammonites, to make them their ruler, which they do in these words, and the people made him head and captain over them. Judges 11.11 11. Which was, as it seems, all one as to be judge. And he judged Israel, Judges 12.7, that is, was their captain-general six years. So when Jotham abrades the Shechemites with the obligation they had to Gideon, who had been their judge and ruler, he tells them, He fought for you, and adventured his life far, and delivered you out of the hands of Midian. Judges 9.17 Nothing mentioned of him but what he did as a general, and indeed that is all is found in his history, or in any of the rest of the judges. And Abimelech particularly is called king, though at most he was but their general. And when, being wary of the ill conduct of Samuel's sons, the children of Israel desired a king, like all the nations, to judge them, and to go out before them, and to fight their battles, 1 Samuel 8.20, 20, 
God granting their desire, says to Samuel, I will send thee a man, and thou shalt anoint him to be captain over my people Israel, that he may save my people out of the hands of the Philistines. 9.16 As if the only business of a king had been to lead out their armies and fight in their defence, and accordingly, at his inauguration, pouring a vial of oil upon him, declares to Saul that the Lord had anointed him to be captain over his inheritance. 10.1 And therefore those who after Saul's being solemnly chosen and saluted king by the tribes at Mizpah, were unwilling to have him their king, made no other objection but this. How shall this man save us? 5.27 As if they should have said, this man is unfit to be our king, not having skill and conduct enough in war to be able to defend us. And when God resolved to transfer the government to David, it is in these words. But now thy kingdom shall not continue. The Lord hath sought him a man after his own heart, and the Lord hath commanded him to be captain over his people. 13.14 As if the whole kingly authority were nothing else but to be their general and therefore the tribes who had stuck to Saul's family and opposed David's reign, when they came to Hebron with terms of submission to him, they tell him, amongst other arguments they had to submit to him as to their king, that he was in effect their king in Saul's time, and therefore they had no reason but to receive him as their king now. Also, say they, in time past, when Saul was king over us, Thou wast he that leddest out and broughtest in Israel. And the Lord said unto thee, Thou shalt feed my people Israel, and thou shalt be a captain over Israel. Thus, whether a family by degrees grew up into a commonwealth, and the fatherly authority being continued on to the elder son, every one in his turn growing up under it, tacitly submitted to it, and the easiness and equality of it not offending any one, every one acquiesced till time seemed to have confirmed it, and settled a right of succession by prescription. Or whether several families, or the descendants of several families, whom chance, neighbourhood, or business brought together, uniting into society, the need of a general whose conduct might defend them against their enemies in war, and the great confidence, the innocence and sincerity of that poor but virtuous age, such as are almost all those which begin governments that ever come to last in the world, gave men one of another, made the first beginners of commonwealths generally put the rule into one man's hand, without any other express limitation or restraint, but what the nature of the thing and the end of government required. Whichever of those it was that at first put the rule into the hands of a single person, certain it is nobody was entrusted with it but for the public good and safety, and to those ends, in the infancies of commonwealths, those who had it commonly used it, and unless they had done so, young societies could not have subsisted. Without such nursing fathers, tender and careful of the public weal, all governments would have sunk under the weakness and infirmities of their infancy, and the prince and the people had soon perished together. But through the golden age, before vain ambition, and amors celeratis habendi, evil concupiscence, had corrupted men's minds into a mistake of true power and honour, had more virtue, and consequently better governors, as well as less vicious subjects, and there was then no stretching prerogative on the one side to oppress the people, nor, consequently on the other, 
any dispute about privilege to lessen or restrain the power of the magistrate and so no contest betwixt rulers and people about governors or government yet when ambition and luxury in future ages would retain and increase the power without doing the business for which it was given and aided by slattery taught princes to have distinct and separate interests from their people men found it necessary to examine more carefully the original and rights of government and to find out ways to restrain the exorbitances and prevent the abuses of that power which they having entrusted in another's hands only for their own good they found was made use of to hurt them thus we may see how probable it is that people that were naturally free and by their own consent either submitted to the government of their father or united together out of different families to make a government should generally put the rule into one man's hands and choose to be under the conduct of a single person without so much as by express conditions limiting or regulating his power which they thought safe enough in his honesty and prudence though they never dreamt of monarchy being iure divino which we never heard of among mankind till it was revealed to us by the divinity of this last age nor ever allowed paternal power to have a right to dominion or to be the foundation of all government and thus much may suffice to show that as far as we have any light from history we have reason to conclude that all peaceful beginnings of government have been laid in the consent of the people i say peaceful because i shall have occasion in another place to speak of conquest which some esteem a way of beginning of governments the other objection i find urged against the beginning of polities in the way i have mentioned is this that is that all men being born under government some or other it is impossible any of them should ever be free and at liberty to unite together and begin a new one or ever be able to erect a lawful government if this argument be good i ask how came so many lawful monarchies into the world for if anybody upon this supposition can show me any one man in any age of the world free to begin a lawful monarchy i will be bound to show him ten other freemen at liberty at the same time to unite and begin a new government under a regal or any other form it being demonstration that if any one born under the dominion of another may be so free as to have a right to command others in a new and distinct empire every one that is born under the dominion of another may be so free too and may become a ruler or subject of a distinct separate government and so by this their own principle either all men however born are free or else there is but one lawful prince one lawful government in the world and then they have nothing to do but barely to show us which that is which when they have done I doubt not but all mankind will easily agree to pay obedience to him. Though it be a sufficient answer to their objection to show that it involves them in the same difficulties that it doth those they use it against, yet I shall endeavour to discover the weakness of this argument a little farther. All men, say they, are born under government, and therefore they cannot be at liberty to begin a new one. Every one is born a subject to his father or his prince, and is therefore under the perpetual tie of subjection and allegiance. It is plain mankind never owned nor considered any such natural subjection that they were born in, to one or to the other that tied them, without their own consents, to a subjection to them and their heirs. For there are no examples so frequent in history, 
both sacred and profane, as those of men withdrawing themselves and their obedience from the jurisdiction they were born under, and the family or community they were bred up in, and setting up new governments in other places, from whence sprang all that number of petty commonwealths in the beginning of ages, and which always multiplied as long as there was room enough, till the stronger or more fortunate swallowed the weaker, and those great ones again breaking to pieces, dissolved into lesser dominions. All which are so many testimonies against paternal sovereignty, and plainly prove that it was not the natural right of the father descending to his heirs that made governments in the beginning, since it was impossible upon that ground there should have been so many little kingdoms. All must have been but only one universal monarchy, if men had not been at liberty to separate themselves from their families, and the government, be it what it will, that was set up in it, and go and make distinct commonwealths and other governments as they thought fit. This has been the practice of the world from its first beginning to this day. Nor is it now any more hindrance to the freedom of mankind that they are born under constituted and ancient polities, that have established laws and set forms of government, than if they were born in the woods, amongst the unconfined inhabitants that run loose in them. For those who would persuade us that, by being born under any government, we are naturally subjects to it, and have no more any title or pretense to the freedom of the state of nature, have no other reason, baiting that of paternal power which we have already answered, to produce for it, but only because our fathers or progenitors passed away their natural liberty, and thereby bound up themselves and their posterity to a perpetual subjection to the government, which they themselves submitted to. It is true that whatever engagements or promises any one has made for himself, he is under the obligation of them, but cannot, by any compact whatsoever, bind his children or posterity. For his son, when a man, being altogether as free as the father, any act of the father can no more give away the liberty of the son than it can of anybody else. He may indeed annex such conditions to the land he enjoyed as a subject of any commonwealth, as may oblige his son to be of that community, if he will enjoy those possessions which were his father's, because that estate being his father's property, he may dispose or settle it as he pleases. And this had generally given the occasion to mistake in this matter, because commonwealths, not permitting any part of their dominions to be dismembered, nor to be enjoyed by any but those of their community, the son cannot ordinarily enjoy the possessions of his father, but under the same terms his father did, by becoming a member of the society, whereby he puts himself presently under the government he finds there established, as much as any other subject of the commonwealth. And thus the consent of freemen, born under government, which only makes the members of it, being given separately in their turns, as each comes to be of age, and not in a multitude together, people take no notice of it, and thinking it not done at all, or not necessary, conclude they are naturally subjects as they are men. But it is plain, governments themselves understand it otherwise. They claim no power over the son because of that they had over the father, nor look on children as being their subjects by their father's being so. If a subject of England have a child by an Englishwoman in France, whose subject is he? Not the King of England's, for he must have leave to be admitted to the privileges of it. Nor the King of France's, for how then has his father a liberty to bring him away and breed him as he pleases? And whoever was judged as a traitor or deserter, 
if he left or warred against the country for being barely born in it of parents that were aliens there it is plain then by the practice of governments themselves as well as by the law of right reason that a child is born a subject of no country or government he is under his father's tuition and authority till he comes to age of discretion and then he is a freeman at liberty what government he will put himself under what body politic he will unite himself to for if an englishman's son born in france be at liberty and may do so it is evident there is no tie upon him by his father's being a subject of this kingdom nor is he bound up by any compact of his ancestors and why then hath not his son by the same reason the same liberty though he be born anywhere else since the power that a father hath naturally over his children is the same wherever they be born and the ties of natural obligations are not bounded by the positive limits of kingdoms and commonwealths every man being as has been showed naturally free and nothing being able to put him into subjection to any earthly power but only his own consent it is to be considered what shall be understood to be a sufficient declaration of a man's consent to make him subject to the laws of any government there is a common distinction of an express and a tacit consent which will concern our present case nobody doubts but an express consent of any man entering into any society makes him a perfect member of that society a subject of that government the difficulty is what ought to be looked upon as a tacit consent and how far it binds that is how far any one shall be looked on to have consented and thereby submitted to any government where he has made no expressions of it at all and to this i say that every man that hath any possessions or enjoyment of any part of the dominions of any government doth thereby give his tacit consent and is as far forth obliged to obedience to the laws of that government during such enjoyment as any one under it whether this his possession be of land to him and his heirs for ever or a lodging only for a week or whether it be barely travelling freely on the highway and in effect it reaches as far as the very being of any one within the territories of that government to understand this the better it is fit to consider that every man when he at first incorporates himself into any commonwealth he by his uniting himself thereunto annexed also and submits to the community those possessions which he has or shall acquire that do not already belong to any other government for it would be a direct contradiction for any one to enter into society with others for the securing and regulating of property and yet to suppose his land whose property is to be regulated by the laws of the society should be exempt from the jurisdiction of that government to which he himself the proprietor of the land is a subject by the same act therefore whereby any one unites his person which was before free to any commonwealth by the same he unites his possessions which were before free to it also and they become both of them person and possession subject to the government and dominion of that commonwealth as long as it hath a being whoever therefore from thenceforth by inheritance purchase permission or other ways enjoys any part of the land so annexed to and under the government of that commonwealth must take it with the condition it is under that is of submitting to the government of the commonwealth under whose jurisdiction it is as far forth as any subject of it but since the government has a direct jurisdiction only over the land and reaches the possessor of it before he has actually incorporated himself in the society only as he dwells upon 
and enjoys that, the obligation any one is under, by virtue of such enjoyment, to submit to the government, begins and ends with the enjoyment, so that, whenever the owner, who has given nothing but such a tacit consent to the government, will, by donation, sale or otherwise, quit the said possession, is at liberty to go and incorporate himself into any other commonwealth, or to agree with others to begin a new one, in vacuus locus, in any part of the world they can find free and unpossessed. Whereas he that has once, by actual agreement, and any express declaration, given his consent to be of any commonwealth, is perpetually and indispensably obliged to be and remain unalterably a subject to it, and can never be again in the liberty of the state of nature, unless by any calamity the government he was under comes to be dissolved, or else by some public act cuts him off from being any longer a member of it. But submitting to the laws of any country, living quietly, and enjoying privileges and protection under them, makes not a man a member of that society. This is only a local protection and homage due to and from all those who, not being in a state of war, come within the territories belonging to any government, to all parts whereof the force of its laws extends. But this no more makes a man a member of that society, a perpetual subject of that commonwealth, than it would make a man a subject to another, in whose family he found it convenient to abide for some time, though, whilst he continued in it, he were obliged to comply with the laws and submit to the government he found there. And thus we see that foreigners, by living all their lives under another government, and enjoying the privileges and protection of it, though they are bound, even in conscience, to submit to its administration, as far forth as any denizen, yet do not thereby come to be subjects or members of that commonwealth. Nothing can make any man so, but is actually entering into it by positive engagement, and express promise and compact. This is that which I think, concerning the beginning of political societies, and that consent which makes any one a member of any commonwealth. End of Book 2, Chapter 8